Hey everyone, thanks for downloading the show. If you've listened to the show before, you know I do shows on topics I find interesting or enlightening. You also know I'm no NPR or BBC on the talent site, but I get by. I also talk with people in the entrepreneurial food business, a dairy farmer, a chef I know from my studies at the Culinary Institute of America, a fellow making salt from Natural Brinewell, and a bean-to-bar chocolate maker. All really great interviews and interesting people. What you may not know is my wife Joanne and I have a small food-based business as well. We make infused balsamic vinegar in four flavors, a spice blend, a hand cream using beeswax from our small apiary, and a couple of other things. About two or three years ago, when we started thinking about our side business, I did a lot of research into food safety and production. Like I have this great idea, now how and where do I go to make it? Enter Forager.com and Dave Crable. Dave is extremely knowledgeable about cottage food laws in the United States. Cottage food laws are the rules, regulations, and laws you need to know if you want to start selling your jams, jellies, or killer hot sauce that you make. Today, Dave and I are going to talk about five of his top 10 mistakes to avoid when starting a cottage food business. I'll include a link in the show notes to his site and to the other five as well. Let's listen to my talk with Dave. David Crable, welcome to the Clean Slate Farm Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Terrific. Thanks for joining us today on the show. Uh, I, I contacted you, obviously, because you have some knowledge of the, a lot of knowledge about cottage food business and food businesses in general. Uh, and we have, my wife and I have a cottage, not a cottage food business, but a commercial food business. And I got an email from you the other day. I thought, well, I haven't had David on before. So we're, we're going to have David Crable on. So, David, let's start out with what is a cottage food business? A cottage food business, I, I actually would say there isn't any true definition of a cottage food business. Cottage food is a term that came up probably about 10 years ago, maybe a little more during the recession when there were these laws that were being created by each state that allows people to use their home kitchen to legally sell Food. Because prior to that, in most states, you would have to have had a commercial kitchen, a licensed inspected kitchen that's separate from your home kitchen in order to sell. So my definition of a cottage food business is somebody who is legally using their home kitchen to sell food. Okay. Yeah. And when you say commercial business in a licensed kitchen in New York State, that's under the uh, uh, New York State Ag and Markets. <clears throat> excuse me, ag- agriculture and markets. And that permit, I think it's called a C20 that you have to have. Okay. They come in and inspect the kitchen and give you the, the blessing and away you go. So so how does a cottage food business differ from a commercial food business then? Instead of using your home kitchen, a commercial business that uses a commercial kitchen or also known as a commissary kitchen, they would have to either rent out that space or own this entire separate kitchen. And the issue with that is that commercial kitchens have tons of rules and regulations regarding what they have to adhere to to be a commercial kitchen, usually hundreds of things that an inspector is looking for. So it's a lot easier for somebody to use their home kitchen. Right. Now, but the things that you can make as a cottage food business and sell are different from those of yeah, a commercial. Absolutely. So The way that it works is in most states, the cottage food laws let you use your home kitchen, but you can only sell non-perishable foods. And sometimes it's a a limited number of types of non-perishable foods. That basically just means anything non-refrigerated. So if you're trying to sell meat 
or uh, chicken pot pie or cheeses or dairy, Mm -hmm. all of those things would need to, you would need to use a commercial kitchen to produce them. Right. Yeah. I know in New York state uh, cottage food law, I think it's, you can make pies, but you can't make pies that contain dairy or egg. Yeah. New York is actually one of the more strict states regarding what they allow and don't allow. And they have some kind of interesting specific rules regarding specific categories. Mm-hmm. I, I think they're a little bit more uptight about what, what's going to be safe or not. They just kind of err on the side of things are going to probably not work. So they just say, you can't do this, you can't do that. I, I can't do anything chocolate related or something like that. I, I haven't looked at their law in a while, but it's it's pretty strict. But, you know, some pe- a lot of people do use the cottage food lot in New York, though. Yeah, chocolate is a definite no-no. Can't do that out of your home kitchen. So why would someone start a cod- cottage food business? And fr- this is going to lead into your top 10 mistakes. We're going to do five of those mistakes today. Uh, but why would someone want to start a cottage food business uh, for personal reasons, for profit, for fun? Is there a very... Yeah, there are a lot of reasons. The Probably the most common reason why people start a cottage food business is because it's easier to start a cottage food business. Mm -hmm. You can get up and running a lot faster and it's a lot less expensive to use your own home kitchen than to use a cottage, than to use a commercial kitchen. But that being said, some people start a cottage food business for other reasons. For instance, a stay at home mom or a stay at home dad would maybe want to be at home with their kids and they don't, have the ability or it's not really practical for them to use a commercial kitchen. Oftentimes with commercial kitchens, especially when you're renting them, there there's different pricing tiers for different times. So a lot of times somebody who's just getting started and needs the cheapest rate will have to go into a commercial kitchen at 2 a.m. in the morning and then they go back home and then their kids wake up and, you know, that. so it's just impractical for them to really be using a commercial kitchen and renting that space and paying $25 an hour, $35 an hour, or even more sometimes. Right. So yeah, it's either cost and ease or sometimes just practicality of needing to be at home. Mm -hmm. Now I'm speaking from a New York, New York state perspective in New York state. If, if you have ag and markets inspect a kitchen, we at one point used the local church, down here and they had a very nice kitchen and markets came in and said yeah it works for us you can do it everything checks out go ahead and then we cut a deal with the church you know how much do you need we'll cut we'll pay you x amount and it was fine our production has increased and now we're in a different kitchen and uh, but so don't overlook if you're going for a commercial kitchen um, you know, VFW halls, churches, whatever if the kitchen yeah if, absolutely if, if you're comfortable with the cleanliness of the kitchen go for it Definitely. Yeah. It, it, just because a lot of people rent commercial kitchens doesn't mean you can't find other ways to use a commercial kitchen. And to be fair, the cottage food lots can be limited enough that a lot of people just go ahead and start with a commercial business. And there's a lot of ways that you can find commercial kitchens, like you said, through churches or sometimes collaborative relationships. And, you know, there's a lot of commercial kitchens out there and sometimes you can even get one for free. Right. Yeah. So let's go right into mistake number two on, on your list is staying behind the scenes. Tell me a little bit more about that, what what you're what you're trying to say there. Yeah, staying behind the scenes is a mistake I definitely have made over the years. I initially started this business called 
Forger. That's how you found me, Dave, through Forger, which was initially going to be a marketplace for the cottage food industry. We didn't call it that at the time. We were just trying to have a marketplace online for homemade food. But in starting that business, we, we thought it was a good idea. And we stayed behind the scenes for about a year while we worked on our product. And this is something I see cottage food businesses do as well as they think they have a good idea and a recipe they try to keep a secret. And so they stay in their kitchen and they try to craft and perfect their recipe and make it, they do all the things that they're supposed to do, quote unquote, supposed to do for a business. And in the process of doing that, they don't get out and talk to anybody about their idea. They don't get in front of customers and then they reveal it to the world. You know, here's my business. This is what I'm doing. And lo and behold, no one's interested. So when we started Forager, (laughs) you know, we worked on it for a year and came up with this product that I thought was technically really great. But then turns out nobody really wanted that. And so eventually we pivoted into this informational website about the cottage food laws. Mm -hmm. But that's just something that gets people a lot because I think I'm an introvert, right? So a lot of people who start their business, especially if they're introverts, they don't necessarily want to be the face of their business. They might want to have more freedom. That might be the reason why they're starting a business. So they don't want to limit their business. They want, they don't want it to be tied to them. Sure. And that I think is, it comes from a good place. You know, you want your business to grow, but what I've learned or what I've found is that you really have to take ownership of your business. You have to be the face of your business and you have to get out and people have to know who you are because ultimately people aren't really buying a product or people aren't really buying the business. People are buying from a person. People are trusting a person and they're trusting you. So I've had to kind of step out of my comfort zone and take ownership of my business and put my face on the about page. And, you know, when I started my fudge business, I told my story, you know, I said, this is how I started this fudge business. And so people are really following me and following my story. And that's how I've found more success in business. Right. Yeah. It's like you mentioned here, uh, something about being a line cook. If you're, if you don't want to be in front of the customer, <laughs> be a line cook, which is, <laughs> you know, I, I cooked for a few years after I got out of the culinary Institute and then went into the front of the house, which I find extremely satisfying because I get to meet a lot of different people and talk with a lot of different people. And yeah. that when you're running a business, like we do a farmer's market uh, and some specialty shows around the area. And it's just, it's just a very nice meeting people. You know, we've got people now who are coming back and say, Oh, Dave, Joanne, how are you doing? It's like, oh, you know, we love your vinegar and, and it's, that's fun. So yeah, step outside yeah. the zone. Don't, don't well, get too stuck. That line about the line cook came from kind of my own belief, which is that, we have gone too far away from getting to know the people who make our food, right? Like it's not just more successful for you to get yourself out in front of people and Mm -hmm. get them to know you, but so much of the food we eat, we have no idea who even prepared it. You know, it just came out of a kitchen and a server served it to us or something like that. So I think there's a real need for our society to move back in the direction of having more local honest, real connections with real people and knowing where our food comes from. Mm-hmm. No, you're exactly right. Yeah. But we see it, we see it every time we go to the market. So, mm-hmm. uh, so number two, staying behind the scenes leads to numbers, mistake number three, which is not staying in touch with your customers, which I, I openly admit, I read that and said, Whoa, I forgot to get email addresses. <laughs> so uh, we're, yeah. we're, we've changed that. <laughs> so, uh, but let's talk a little bit about that because, uh, 
that's a very important thing. Yeah. And I just could clarify, we're talking about points two and three. We're pulling these out of a larger document that yes. I created. Yes. Which, it's yeah. a 10 point list. And we're, <laughs> so we're, we're only covering five of them, but you can, you know, I'll tell you at the end how you can find the rest of them on my website. Yeah. We're going to post that in the show notes. So yeah, number three is not staying in touch with the customers. And again, a mistake I made from the very beginning, I went many years without really staying in touch with people. People would come to my website, people would leave my website and never hear from them again. And I started to learn about email marketing and learned about the importance of staying in touch with people. I was at a market probably about a year ago and I was there, there was this couple selling freeze dried foods and I asked them how things were going and they said, you know, they're, they're going okay. You know, we've been doing it for six months. We haven't, you know, been as successful as we thought. And I asked them, have you been collecting the email addresses from your customers? And they said, no. And I said, well, you might want to think about doing that. And they're like, oh, that's a really good idea. And it's just so funny because I think we, it's, it's a non-imperative thing, but it's, it's actually more imperative than you think. Mm-hmm. Just staying in touch with people. I think it's not just that you need to stay in touch with them because there's potential for returning customers. But I think there is a, a real value to allowing people into your story, mm-hmm. allowing people to follow you. And I think people want to follow your journey. When you're just starting out and you have a mission and you have a story, People want to hear that. People people want to follow you. They want to support you. Yeah. They don't want to follow and support all of the big brands out there. Mm-hmm. So by having an email list, by collecting people's email addresses and staying in touch with them, preferably on a weekly basis, then you are basically giving them a gift, mm-hmm. which is allowing them to see your story and, and support yeah. you. Yep. Yeah, people people love to hear the story behind what we're doing and where we live and how we came to call it clean slate farm and everything. So, uh, that's a great connection. And plus, you know, the whole email listing is great because it's easier to, to, to sell to the same customer a second time than it is the a new customer the first time. Yeah. You're there. It's about it's, 10 know. times easier, I believe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, they've actually done research on it and you can, uh, an email list of customers is 10 times more profitable than an email list of just non-customers Yep. or people who haven't bought from you before. And I should add here that there are a lot of ways to stay in touch with your customers. I'm talking about email marketing because it's, the, it has the right balance between being very effective, but also being scalable. Mm-hmm. Because quite frankly, the most effective way of communicating with people is face to face. I mean, you could go to their house, sure. or you could call them on the phone, or you could send them something in the mail. All of these things have different levels of expense and time. But email marketing, while not as effective as those more personal methods of com- connecting with people, it has the right balance between being very low cost. Mm-hmm but also very effective because an inbox, an email inbox is kind of a private space for people. And if they let you into their inbox, they're really letting you into their home in some ways. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's sort of why I'm talking about email marketing because it's something that's scalable and low cost and very effective. Yeah. And email is awful. It's also uh, different from like Facebook marketing. It's more of a shotgun approach. 
You might yeah. have <clears throat> you might have a bunch of followers on Facebook, but email you've got people who said yes, sign me up for the list. Yeah, so Facebook, there's lots of those. You know, Instagram, Twitter, all of those are good <clears throat> social media strategies, but it's been proven that email is way, way, way more effective yeah. than any of those other tools. Yep. Exactly right. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't have those other tools though, right? I mean, you oh, it's, it's a combination. Yeah. yeah. You, but you know, I you spent, should at least have email. Yeah. I spent the better part of, of 30 years, 25 to 30 years in the advertising, marketing, public relations business. And you never use one tool. Mm -hmm. You use several tools. You know, they're yeah. all different. Like you wouldn't, uh, you know, at the time we, you know, billboard, newspaper, radio, television, it's changed nowadays, but same thing, you know, Facebook, email, Twitter, Instagram. You had another point here, another one of your mistakes, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, imitating a larger business. Uh, talk about that because that is, uh, it can be good and bad. Right. I mean, so I think it's natural for people to want to imitate larger businesses, right? I mean, you look, if you want to be successful, look at people who are successful. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of this mistake comes around people trying to get ahead of themselves and um, look at, uh, it's, it's particularly focused on branding because I hear a lot about branding and I notice a lot of cottage food businesses, they start trying to brand their business and make sure it has the logos and consistent business cards and have the right setup for their business. And this is a mistake I made when we started Forger before we even had the first sale, I spent hours and hours trying to create business cards and get the perfect business cards to promote our business. And I actually wrote out our own terms of service and spent probably a couple of weeks writing that. And then I created an S corporation for Forger. And then uh, we spent weeks picking out a business name. We did all these different things. You know, it, it goes beyond that. Creating a banner and all, there's all these different things that can kind of distract you in your business. And I focused on the branding and all of the right things in Forger, but then we didn't even have a sale and it and it was just all for not. So sure. what I've seen is that businesses will focus on their branding and focus on trying to imitate larger brands without really understanding what the purpose of branding is. And the purpose of branding is connecting to customers in a consistent way. The fact is that the reason why the big businesses use branding is because they want to have a connection with customers. And they actually wish they could have the kind of connection that small cottage food businesses automatically have yeah, just by personal. being small, yeah. just by being, yeah, just by being a, a single person and having that personal connection with people. Mm -hmm. They wish they could have that. They don't have that. So they do the next best thing, which is branding in a way to personalize and connect with their audience and with their customers. So what I say is really when you start your business, you are the brand. Right. It's all about you. And it, you don't necessarily need to have all of these different things and try to imitate big brands that have these polished logos and all of these yep. business cards and marketing materials and all this stuff, because people are really buying from you. They're mm -hmm. not buying from a label, you know, so that's, that's kind of a way that I see people get ahead of themselves and they focus on branding in the wrong way. They try to imitate these big businesses instead of just focusing on their core value, which is themselves. 
Just a little commercial break here. Did you know we have a YouTube channel? Yes, we do. And that uh, vinegar that I was talking about earlier, well, we make a garlic balsamic vinegar, and you can see how we plant and harvest that garlic that we use in that vinegar. Pop on over and take a look. It's pretty interesting stuff. We also have an Amazon affiliate site, and that is uh, amazon.com slash shop slash clean slate farm. And on that, if you purchase anything through those links, you help support clean slate farm because we get a small commission for that. Now, you should shop local, but if it's something you're going to buy on Amazon anyway, use that link, help us out a little bit. Always shop local if you can. Let's get back to our talk with Dave. Their core value, which is themselves. Right. And you may not want to imitate a large business because that's true. You, you may want to be more personal than that. Absolutely. When I started my fudge business, I the first label I created was in Microsoft Word. And I actually did that intentionally because I have been a web developer for a number of years and I know how to use Photoshop and Adobe Illustrator and those kinds of advanced tools. But I actually wanted my labels to be very homegrown, mm -hmm. very simple. Yeah. They didn't need to be anything extravagant. Yeah. So I, I actually intentionally kept it really easy, really simple. I used Microsoft Word. I printed it out on my home computer and it worked. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't it didn't need to be anything fancy. And people look at that and they go, OK, this is this is authentic. This is somebody who's really starting out and they're small and I'm sure. here to support them. Yeah, uh, it just has to be clean and professional looking. That's it. Sure. You know, doesn't have to be crazy. So and and as you said earlier, grow with it. It, it, it will come when the time is right. Yeah, you'll know it, which leads me to the next point, which would be trying to scale too early, which is. Yeah, pretty very related. Yeah. Yeah, it's very related. The scaling, I think of a little bit differently because uh, this is where people really get ahead of themselves. And I think entrepreneurs, or at least I can speak for myself, you know, we're dreamers. We like to envision what could be <laughs> yeah. in our business, right? You know, we, we can see it, you know, we can see our business taking off and being successful. And sometimes we get a little ahead of ourselves and we plan for that success before it actually comes. So in my fudge business, I focused on how I was going to make all these batches of fudge, right? Like I knew how to make fudge in really small batches, mm -hmm. but this is not sustainable when you're selling pounds and pounds and pounds of fudge. So I looked at this, uh, this device called the Robo Stir, which like automatically stirs pots for you. Yep. And then I was looking at different, uh, like enormous bowls to make my fudge in. And so I was really focusing on that scaling and system is kind of fun, but I hadn't even sold one pound yet. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You don't and, and I did, we did this with Forger too. We created this whole system and before we launched it, we signed up for this server for the non-technical people. The server is just a computer that, that serves your website and, and gives your website to gives people access to your website. It costs like a hundred dollars a month to run the server. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't know, it only costs a few dollars a month to run a basic server. And we hadn't even had one sale, but we were, you know, prepared to scale, right? Yep. Like we, we, we didn't want there to be any hiccups when the masses started to come to our, <laughs> our website. And of course they never did. Yeah. So it's just take it one step at a time. I always say, focus on your first dollar first, Right. And and get to that first dollar and then get to the five hundred dollar mark. And then as you need to scale, like right now, 
I am focusing a bit more on scaling in my fudge business because I sell more than one pound, you know, so I'm looking at ways to make things easier, but it's as I need to. Right. So that's just the whole thing. It's just don't don't scale before you have to. Right. You don't need a 25,000 square foot warehouse until you until you have that problem. Where do you put all the product that you're going to be selling? I also should add on here that this ties into the cottage food laws because a number of cottage food laws, not all, have a sales limit for their cottage food laws. So you can only sell in Cal- in California, where I live, you can only sell up to $50,000 of product. But in some states, uh, it's more like twenty or 15000 and I think even as low as 5000 in one or two states. And sometimes people look at that sales limit and they go, whoa, like I, I, that's that's way too limiting. Like, I don't know if I should even start this cottage food business because my sales, I can only sell $15,000. I mean, that's not going to pay my bills. Right. So they, they let that hold them back from starting a cottage food business. And I get this question a lot where, you know, should I start a commercial business because, you know, my business is going to blow up and I'm going to make all this money and, you know, and I'm going to have to switch from a cottage food business to a commercial business. And I always tell people, or I ask people, how much have you sold already? (laughs) Because quite frankly, if you're selling jelly or you're selling fudge or whatever, $5,000 is actually a lot of fudge to make. I mean, yeah. it's it's a lot of product, right? Yep. Um, you're going to learn a lot about your business over the course of selling even $5,000 of product, $50,000 even more so. So I tell people, you know, you might want to start with the cottage food business. And then the, the whole point of the cottage food laws is really to have a good, easy entry point to the commercial food business. So start with that and then see where your business goes instead of having to invest in. So the commercial kitchen and the commercial businesses, they can be much more expensive to start and much more complicated to start. So I usually tell people start with the cottage food and then worry about the sales limit when you're hitting it. Exactly. Yeah. Grow into it. And it's not a bad problem if you've got to scramble to get a a different (laughs) kitchen, right? It's a good thing. It means you're growing. (laughs) That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. No, that's, that's, you know, and also, like you said, equipment, you know, we looked at, because when we bottle, it's bottled one at a time, and we set up a production day, and we go, what do we bottle? And I first looked, and I thought, man, this is a lot of bottling. We're selling cases of this stuff. I thought, we need a bigger bottling machine. And I looked at the price, it's like, I am not spending $25,000 on a bottling mm. machine at this point. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll go from where we are now to handing it over to uh, a co-packer, perhaps. Yeah. And let them do it. I deal with that in the fudge business. I mean, if I if I had my way with the fudge, one of the hardest things about fudge is cutting the fudge. Mm-hmm. And there are these guitar slicers yep. that you can buy, and they cost like $2,000 or more. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I really don't need that right now. So, you know, maybe maybe sometime in the future, maybe it would make it really all my cuts really professional and easy and yeah. fast. But uh, it's just right now I'm using a knife. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, look at I'll give you a little tip. We used to do the marketing and advertising and public relations for the Stilton Cheesemakers out of the UK. Mm-hmm. And we did a lot of shows and we would have wheels of cheese to cut, get mm-hmm. a cheese wire. Yeah, I've um, I've experimented that. I actually the problem with the cheese wire is the nuts in the fudge. Oh, right. Because it's harder to cut through. So you would have to have the fudge really hard. Yep. 
and then it's really hard to cut through the nuts with it. So I actually use like a cheese knife. Yep. It's okay. like a 15 inch. <laughs> it's a huge knife. Rocker arm on it. Knife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but we, we didn't solve that problem. We tried. <laughs> uh, now we have a, uh, the next issue is knowing you have a great product and you're selling the product and you're pricing the product. But is, are you charging enough? Are you charging too much? So let's talk a little bit about perceived value. Right. So one thing that I see a lot with cottage food businesses, and they worry a lot about what their pricing should be, as they should. I mean, pricing is a huge part of your success as a food business. But oftentimes they get caught up in the ingredients and the elements and the costs associated with running their business. And they just add it up like, OK, how much how much did I spend on these ingredients and how much does it cost me to run my kitchen and how much am I going to sell and how much are my licenses and how much is the value of my time? And they add it all up and then they try to come up with a price from there. Right. And it's really your customer doesn't care whether you spent X, Y, Z on the product you're selling you're selling a variety of things, but you're selling an experience, you're selling value, you're selling um, the end result to them, and they will spend whatever they perceive is it's valued at. So what I say, instead of trying to focus on all the cost of the ingredients and trying to price your products that way, you should focus on the perceptions of your customers and sometimes perceptions are already existent, right? Mm -hmm. Like people might already have a pre-existing notion for what something should be worth because that's what other people do. So you can look at competition as well. But I always say you can change perceptions, right? right. And that's where some marketing comes around, especially you infusing your personality, you infusing your story. Mm -hmm. And that is a way of changing the price. So I say don't focus on the costs that go into the product Focus on the perceptions, and if the price isn't enough to sustain your business, look at how you can change your customers' perceptions to increase the price to a point where it is sustainable. Mm -hmm. oh, exactly and, right. Yeah, and I can add just initially I started out not selling fudge. I was trying to sell my chocolate chip cookies, and I learned that chocolate chip cookies are actually an item that have a very low perceived value. They are not, not, not in my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of people going out and buying at the markets, you know, people are fairly used to going to a grocery store and buying like three dozen regular cheapo, horrible chocolate chip cookies for five dollars. Right. So although people are willing to spend more than that for a freshly baked homemade chocolate chip cookie, their perception is already so low that it can only go so high. Right. And chocolate chip cookies have a number of other issues. I mean, they're very labor intensive. They have a very low, short shelf life. Right. You know, so there are a variety of issues there. But with a cookie business, you know, if you're trying to compete against customer perceptions, uh, one thing I say is you it goes both ways, right? You can change customers' perceptions, but sometimes you have to understand customers' perceptions and maybe use that to decide what is the right product for you to sell. Right. Because, you know, it might be an uphill battle. You might be better off selling fudge for a little while and understanding how business works and how a food business works and getting your legs under you and then trying to do something that's more of an uphill battle like 
chocolate chip cookies if that's your passion. You know, it's uh, it bears saying I I'm in the restaurant business still, and one of the things that as a manager I would tell my servers is, you know, perception is everything. It's the reality you're working with, and it's not your mm-hmm. perception; it's the guest's perception. Yeah, that's 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 your reality. So if they say the food was lousy and you know the food was terrific, guess what? The food was lousy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like in in business class and marketing class in college. You know, they always say the customer is always right. That's pretty mm-hmm. oft repeated adage of yeah. the business world. And I mean, the reality is that the customer is not always right, right? But <laughs> go to rule one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and sometimes you do have to like fire customers, or you know, you have to to understand who your right customers are and target them, and, and yeah. you know, hold the line. But you know, generally, if your customers believe something, then that's that's the truth for you. Yeah, and I think the point there is, if you're hearing a lot of feedback that Jesus is a great cookie, but it's not that great. It's not the most charming cookie I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe you need to adjust your recipe. Maybe you need to think about a different kind of cookie. You know, you have to, th- yeah. that's all feedback you have to take into account. Yeah, the most successful cottage food businesses that I see, they have some flexibility in their mindset about their food business. Mm-hmm. A lot of people come into the industry and they have fixed in their mind what they want to sell. You know, right. their grandma's lasagna or something like that. I mean, that's not even something that you typically can sell Mm -hmm. with a cottage food law, but they want to sell this one thing. And if they can't sell that, then they're not going to start a business. And the successful businesses I see, they need to have flexibility. They, They don't necessarily want to sell one specific item they want to start a food business. They want to change their life. They mm-hmm. want to support their family. They want to have more freedom. They want, you know, there are all these things that you can get out of a food business. But the the form that that business takes will change over time. Mm-hmm. And the successful people I see in the business are willing to adapt and change their vision to match their market instead of just being focused on selling one type of item. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, with our stuff that we're selling, it's like we're looking for new ideas. And it's like, oh, geez, we could do this. Oh, we could do this. But it gets away from our core. Right. And we're not going to stray from the core. If it's not within the the, the core um, product line that we have and it doesn't fit in that product line, we're not going to do it. I, I We might make the best in the world, but we're not going to do it. So, David, what is your uh, – let's let's talk about where your website is so people can get a get a copy of the 10, 10 mistakes. Sure. My website's called Forger. It's two R's in the middle there, F-O-R-R-A-G-E-R. And if you go to the website, forger.com, you can see your cottage food law and see how you can start a food business from home legally in your state. And – the mistakes guide that we've been talking about is probably up in the sidebar or somewhere. You'll probably see it floating around, but you can also go to it directly by just going to forger.com slash mistakes. Mm-hmm. Great. That's terrific. Yeah, it's a great site. And I think I heard of you going back when we started two and a half, three years ago, I think is when I first yeah. heard of Forger. And it was very helpful. It's a nice site, very clearly laid out. David's done a wonderful job on the design of the site and finding information. There's forums there where you can ask questions of other people, which is another point I'd like to bring up. Do not work in a vacuum. You need to, (laughs) you have to be in touch with other people. Like when you're at the market, 
talk with the vendors around you because it's just it's a community that that shares and helps and can be very uh, very encouraging. Uh, so do that, yeah. So yeah, well that's great, absolutely. David. Thanks very much for joining us today. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll put everything in the show notes down here. And uh, look forward to hearing your podcast. You're going to start a podcast, correct? Yeah, I just asked my email list, uh, what they would like me to create next. And the majority of them said that they'd like to see a podcast. And there has not been, as far as I know, a podcast that's solely dedicated to the cottage food industry. So I'm just going to be interviewing people. I'm connected to a lot of cottage food businesses and going to be interviewing them and seeing what works and what doesn't. And uh, that should be coming up probably in the next couple months or so. Great. Well, congratulations on starting there. It's a lot of fun. Meet a lot of interesting people. Dave, thanks again for joining us, and uh, we'll be in touch. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Great. Well, that was a fun and informative interview with Dave Crable from Forager.com, all about starting a cottage food business out of your home and even more. So one thing I would like to recommend to you is that if you're going to start a business, research it with your state and local authorities so you know you are within the bounds of the law. I wanted to put that disclaimer in right now. I will put links below to Dave's website, to our website, and also to some uh, links to Cornell University, who has uh, some information on food businesses as well. So thanks for listening and downloading the show. We appreciate it, and we'll catch you the next time. Bye-bye.